Well, it's hard to believe it's been a year since last Christmas season. This one went by particularly quickly. Um, uh, it was a year ago that my friends uh, Chris and Lori opened their uh, Anytime Fitness franchise. Too much fanfare. You know, it was really an exciting time. I was glad to be there. Uh, dignitaries from Arcadia came to wish them well, even got up and spoke. There was one in particular, a community leader, a young foolish type who in the middle of his remarks managed to mention that he was a member of 24-hour fitness. Some of us started to boo him. I thought to myself, how did this awkward human ever get elected to a human political responsibility? I thought to myself, you know, this is the kind of guy that would show up at a McDonald's grand opening and go, man, it's not really good as In-N-Out, but you know, hey, really glad you're here, everybody. What I I do remember very uh, strongly feeling was this sense of loyalty. You know, I was like, hey, this is my friend's day and you're messing it up, you know, and there was nothing I could do about it, so frustration reigned. Uh, I appreciate loyalty. Um, it's, a, it's a byproduct of friendship. Uh, it's not something you decide, like mid-friendship, you go, should I be loyal or not loyal? You just, you have a friend, you feel an instinct, you sense that. I have a buddy in Florida, his name's Greg, and Greg is a fairly straight-laced Presbyterian. And the church that we were uh, part of founding in Tallahassee, Florida, was a very charismatic-leaning uh, center city, uh, multi-racial congregation. Not his cup of tea. I'll just say that right up front. It wasn't anything that he would have naturally gravitated towards. Super duper heavy-minded theologically uh, would have been more comfortable and is more comfortable in a high church environment. But he signed up anyway, partly because he loves Jesus, but partly because he loved me, his friend. He just came along for the ride, just so I would know that he was my friend. And I realized we were friends, and he wasn't just a congregation member, when he, I moved out here to California, and he called to say he was getting married, and he said, hey, I was just curious, and this is about the time where people go, would you do my wedding ceremony, Pastor Chuck? And he said, would you be in my, one of my groomsmen? And that was the first time in the history of my church life, as a pastor anyway, where a congregation member had asked me to actually be in their wedding party. And, and it wasn't something you could make up. It was just like, you're not just my pastor, you're a friend. And I, and I remember thinking, that's surprising. Um, just, it, was, it was comforting. It was, uh, I felt a huge amount of love. You know, I think that's part of uh, what we feel when people pursue us. One way we feel love is when others take the initiative to let us know they're thinking about us. You're in a situation in life that's difficult and a friend texts you and says, hey, I'm remembering you, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you. Perhaps you're in a situation where your work life is, you know, hell on earth and somebody, maybe it's a spouse, uh, lets you know that, hey, I'm sorry your day was tough or I'm, I'm with you in spirit keep on pressing on kind of thing. We, we love the feeling. Contrary, conversely, when we chase others, when we initiate contact with others and they don't respond, 
it gives you that sixth sense of, this person doesn't value me all that much. And I've experienced that with my own kids when I text them, and sometime next month they respond, and I know because I've been out to dinner with them and watched them text immediately people they actually care about that, uh, that they're ignoring me. I know the feeling, uh, having uh, pursued relationships with the fairer sex as a young man and having been rebuffed. I know what it feels like, the, the, the sadness, the, the feelings of, um, you know, I'm pursuing somebody, they're not reciprocating. Today, Advent begins, and so as we do every year, we're going to celebrate four aspects of the Advent of Christ, the coming of Christ and what we see in the character of God as we make our way through this season. Um, uh, today, appropriately, we are going to talk about the love of God. A part of the mission of God, we see in Him demonstrating it and taking initiative to pursue us. Some introductory text notes from our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 1, which Incidentally, is written in your bulletin this week, so if you're wondering, where is he? That's all I'll ever do, is we'll be writing that passage all day long. Uh, in this section, Matthew not only provides an account of the virgin birth of Jesus, there is a reinforcement of the Christian view of Scripture as authoritative and trustworthy. Um, this is going to form for us a framework for our investigation of the love and pursuit of God. Before we get going, though, discussing the Word of God, it's perhaps important to recognize that some might classify the Christian scriptures themselves as mythological, which would make my reading of them up here akin to, you know, narrating from the Lord of the Rings. You'd wonder, why exactly are we doing this? This view of scripture, a very low view of scripture, is a byproduct of the Enlightenment. It's the product of hundreds of years of people being told again and again that the miraculous can't happen. It would violate the physical laws of our world. And, you know, it's a bit of a circular argument for somebody to say, I don't believe in miracles. Uh, they can't happen, even if you testify to them, because miracles don't happen. You know, it, how do you actually carry on a conversation who's already determined on the front side that miracles aren't even possible? Movements do this, um, and, and it, uh, informally, great Americans like Thomas Jefferson have gone to great lengths to remove the miraculous from the Bible. The Jeffersonian Bible is a deist's view of God's work in the world, subtracting, extracting anything that would violate what one might think is the normal or the physical way of looking at the world. But... Christians at Christmas are pressed to admit that there are some things we believe that are going to fly in the face of the scientific community in the sense that you couldn't replicate them in a lab and we are testifying to some things that we believe are logically presupposed in talking about who Jesus is in the first place. For instance, here are three things we presume at PRISM and perhaps in Orthodox Christianity as a whole, and they are relevant to our study of Advent. First, we would presume that if God exists, He by definition 
and by Scripture's declaration, isn't physical. He's spiritual. He is spirit. Uh, Secondly, if God created the world in the first place, he certainly has the power to violate that physical world if he chooses to. It wouldn't make any sense for him to not be able to. He uh, can and we believe does. And then thirdly, and perhaps most significant in terms of our own look at who Jesus is during this Advent season, if Jesus was God in the flesh, who we profess him to be, um, we no longer need to guess at what might be the specific attributes of God. We get to see them in the incarnation of God into a human being in Jesus Christ. And we do profess and believe that God has shown us these character traits through Jesus. Chief among them is love. So in what ways does God take the initiative with us that we would know his love? How can we, as people who love to have others pursue us, how can we, as people who love to be affirmed by virtue of someone else saying, hey, I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you, how, how do we see that, particularly in our passage today and in Advent more broadly? And that is two ways. One is God's going to take the initiative to speak to us, and God has taken the initiative to save us. Let's look at God speaking to us first in verse 20 of Matthew 1. As Joseph was contemplating these things, now before I read the rest of verse 20, let me talk to you about what Joseph was contemplating if you're not familiar with the Christmas story. In Joseph's life, he was legally bound to marry Mary. In in that era, uh, engagement was far more substantial than just buying a ring for somebody and kneeling on the beach in front of the photographer that you hired in the bushes or whatever they're doing these days. Uh, It it was so much more than that. There was money involved. There was an expectation of responsibility once you signed up for that. So we we have this uh, contract that has been signed, this agreement, this is going to take place. And, And now Joseph has found out that his betrothed is pregnant. And so he's figuring... We're going to end this thing. We've got to get out of this somehow. And it says, as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see the Lord's concern for Joseph. He doesn't want him to be afraid. And like us, the way he addresses the fears of our souls is he speaks to us. He comes to us. He takes the initiative to assure us, to affirm that everything's going to be fine, that I got this. You don't need to worry. He says this because he wants to speak into Joseph's life and relieve the pressure that he's feeling. Mary gets a lot of good press, and why shouldn't she? She's Jesus' mom, right? But Joseph, I got to tell you, he's, he's a hero I think people should emulate. Uh, Imagine, if you will, the disappointment he must have felt knowing that Mary's baby was conceived by someone else. Imagine, he didn't know until the Lord spoke to him. He thought the love of his life had been unfaithful to him. Can you imagine the pain? Can you think and feel how crushing it would have been to find out that the person you were engaged to before you'd even had a chance to sleep with them 
had decided, I'm going to be unfaithful to you during our engagement period. And yet he loved Mary. And you'd think if anybody had the right to stand up and go, this person did this to me, it would have been him. But he loved her and he didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want her to suffer anything that would make her feel ashamed. And so it says in the text, he was unwilling to put her to shame, so he resolved to divorce her quietly. So this is actually a really kind thing. This is a, this is a good man. Mary had herself a man of character who was going to raise Jesus. Now you see in this text, Jesus conceived in a virgin properly as a miracle, more so to announce that God was intent on redeeming his people and being present with us. But Matthew is less concerned to prove the virgin birth to his audience because his audience, unlike the post-Enlightenment Westerner audience, didn't have any problem with miracles. This was presumed to be the case. And in fact, the intellectuals of our era looked down their nose at those arcane, primitive people who believed in miracles. So this was not the agenda of Matthew. The agenda of Matthew convinced Jews that Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament. He quotes from the Old Testament in this first chapter of Matthew, and it's the first of a number of Old Testament references Matthew, Matthew will use uh, throughout his gospel to make his unique contribution to Scripture. Matthew's unique contribution is he was going to make the story relevant and clear to people who were steeped in the Old Testament and committed to trusting God's Word. He wanted them to see that Jesus was the actual fulfillment of the Old Testament. We believe this is how the Holy Spirit actually makes Scripture, too. It, it, it is not a stenographer experience. People don't sit when they were writing the verses of Scripture and what's that God and they jot what God says. What's that God and they jot that down. They use their creative impulses. Matthew would have the Gospel of Mark at the ready. Having that in place, and we know that. Historians say that 95% of Mark's Gospel is actually replicated in Matthew's and then expanded upon for the purposes of helping people understand that Jesus is everything that the Old Testament promised. Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew Henry, the great Christian commentator, wrote, Theologians debate why Jesus had to be born from a virgin, sometimes suggesting, for instance, that God sent Jesus through a virgin so he could ex escape the sin nature. Yet for whatever other reasons God incarnated Jesus through a virgin, the only reason Matthew states is that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Thus Matthew trusts the authority of Scripture. The Gospel writer himself is saying, we bank on the Old Testament being God's Word, and I'm here to tell you, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And apparently, trusting the word of the Lord is what Joseph substantially does. The Lord comes to him from, with an angel, 
tells him what to do. And in verses 24 and 25, it says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So he obeyed the Lord on a couple of scores here. One is he, he did what the Lord said. He, he did not divorce her. Secondly, he did not know her, was not sexually active with her, did not consummate the marriage until she had given birth because he wanted everyone else to be certain. He wanted Mary to be certain. This thing that's happened in you, you didn't imagine this. This is from the Holy Spirit. He wanted the world to know that God had promised and that God was fulfilling. One way that God has shown His love for His people throughout time has been to take the initiative to speak to them. And you may say, it's never spoken to me audibly. And I would say, rare is the person that has heard God audibly speak, although it's possible. I would say that as we taught last week, and you can hear that message through our podcast or on our website, He has spoken through the prophets. This is what we profess The Christian church through the centuries has echoed the words of the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets, both Old and New Testament. The apostles were promised by Jesus to be able to recall by the power of the Spirit what Jesus had said. So He has spoken to you in His Word. But secondly, God has spoken in any number of ways to us to reinforce what He said in Scripture. His daily provision has been made for you, let alone the special ways He's provided. All of those things testify of the love and care of your heavenly Father. The problem is is that we often aren't listening. We don't see these things for what they are. It's the Spirit of God moving to communicate with us our unique place with Him. And finally, God has spoken to us in this very act of his son's incarnation. He's saying he wasn't waiting for us to chase him down. God took the initiative and showed us his love. He has pursued you and is providing, and this is what you need to see beneath the surface of our Christmas celebration. The Lord is coming to you to communicate something to you. He loves you, and He's going to take care of you. It was a little over a year ago that my friend Chris communicated something very clearly to me. At the time, I was tipping the scales around 250 pounds. So my brother Chris gave me my Christmas gift. He said, Merry Christmas. Here's a membership to Anytime Fitness. Now, that's kind of like when somebody says, would you like a breath mint? They are communicating something. All right. And out of love, what he's saying is, for your physical health, my wife and I are going to make sure that you work out this year. And unfortunately, when somebody gives you a gym membership, you kind of have to honor it. So you really do have to show up. If you buy your own, it's kind of like, ah, I paid for that thing. If I want to ignore it, I can. You know, but when somebody actually goes out of their way to do that, you're, you're sort of held accountable. See, God speaks to us by virtue of his action. God's speaking to you. He has been speaking to you. This is the first way He takes the initiative continuously to show you that He loves you. The second way we see His initiative is through His intentionality in saving us. Again, from 
Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Anytime that anybody would ever communicate to you that Jesus' mission was not primarily what verse 21 says, saving people from their sins, you can rest assured they don't understand Christianity. There's all sorts of byproducts of this reconciliation that has taken place between us and God. I mean, we, we live for Him, we love people well, we glorify Him in serving and taking care of people, particularly those in need. We pursue justice with all of our heart. All of those things are byproducts of being reconciled to God. But the mission of Jesus was primarily to save us from our sins. I think we should camp out in that for a little bit because there's a move afoot amongst some so-called evangelical Christians to say things like, well, it's not just about his death. Jesus, it was just as much about his life. And all that does is say, we don't want to focus on the fact that people need to be forgiven of their sins, that we don't want to focus on our own sin. Jesus, his name means Yahweh saves. It's the Greek equivalent of Joshua. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. Jesus, the name's pronounced Yeshua. And in Hebrew, oftentimes the men were named just using the first syllable of one of the names of God. So in Yeshua, you had Yahweh. Yahweh saves. In the case of Elijah, it was Elohim, Elijah. So from the outset, what we know is Jesus' purpose was to save us. His name reinforces his mission. And often buried beneath the actions of God are the meanings of those actions. If you had a son and you sat around and you said, what are we going to name this boy and either you or your spouse said, I got it. We're going to name him Henry Aaron Ryer. You go, Henry Aaron, Babe Ruth Ryer. Don't you know these are home run kings? You'd be saying, by naming my son by my favorite baseball star, I'm trying to destine this person for baseball greatness. You know, if you, if you were silly enough to name your child after your favorite actor, George Clooney Jr. Ryer. You know what I mean? So you'd be saying, kid, you're going to be an actor one day. I dest- I'm trying to forge this. Probably scar the kid for life, and you end up in paying for a lot of therapy later on. But the point is that from his conception, from his conception, his name was Yahweh Saves. God sent Jesus to save us, and it means we needed saving. But it also means that God didn't wait for us to call Him. This past week, uh, the Ryers had two different occasions where we had to call 911. One was uh, Carolyn's car was vandalized outside her home, and actually, really weirdly, I had bought a bunch of things for the church. Um, including some poinsettias, and I guess somebody really needed poinsettias, and Jesus provided some poinsettias for some people because they broke, smashed out the back of our car, 
and took the poinsettias. I'm thinking, wow, that hard up for plant life. Okay. What goes on in the mind of humans? Um, but then later in the week, Holly was driving and a, and a transit bus swiped her and then took off. She tried to flag the guy down. And he just ran through a red light, you know. And so both of us, on two different occasions, had to call 911 and then wait and wait some more and wait some more. You know, because these were low-level threats. And so the police would prioritize other issues. And so we called 911 and we waited as patiently as possible, hours, for someone to come and take a little report and tell us, guess what, you're out of luck, there's nothing we can do for you. This is the opposite of what God does. Not only uh, do, does he not expect us to call him, he comes after us. He, he doesn't wait for us to say, I'm going to create an action plan for how I can reconcile myself to God. God initiated the entire plan to save us. Long before you were born, 2,000 years ago, long before you ever had cognition to think, hey, I need rescuing. His mission to show His love to you began. Before you ever knew you needed forgiveness, He'd already sent His crew. We also see God's pursuit, not just in sending Jesus, we see God's pursuit in sending His apostles. We see Him tell the apostles in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, or in the declaration of the Holy Spirit's mission for the church in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see that we're going to the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. The apostles, Jesus' men, were told, go. Don't wait around for people to show up here. They're not going to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We're taking this thing to them. Go. And, and not just the apostles. The apostles turned around and said, hey, we've got a commission from the Lord for all of you. Go! One of my favorite New Testament passages is from 2 Corinthians 5. Speaking of the mission of God, the Apostle Paul would write to us, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him... We might become the righteousness of God. And all of these directives to go and reach and be ambassadors, we're given a glimpse into the heart of God for you. He has been and is pursuing you. You may not have heard it. We live in a broken world. We're broken people. 
Sometimes the connection's bad. Sometimes it's the impatience of feeling like I've been waiting for a while to hear from him and I'm going to presume that he doesn't love me because I just feel like it's been too long. That's an error on our part. Last week I told you about the time I first knew I'd fallen in love with Carolyn, my wife of many moons. And uh, what you don't know is that in human terms, our relationship almost never happened. Uh, I was initially set up with Carolyn on a blind date by one of my five sisters. And uh, uh, the day of that blind date, I got a phone call from Carolyn, and on the other end I hear, uh, uh, I'm not feeling well. I'm like, yeah, I've heard this one before. (laughs) Seen this movie too many times. (laughs) All right, so I said, okay, sure, I'll call you back next week, and uh, we'll reschedule. Okay, thanks, thanks. So I call back the next week, and I get her roommate. She's like, ah, Carolyn isn't here. Oh, yeah, really? She's not here, huh? Uh, Well, would you leave her a message? Tell her I called and that I was just trying to reschedule our date. She goes, sure thing, and she hangs up. One week goes by, no return phone call. Two weeks go by, no return phone call. The third week is going by, and I'm not, a, I'm not stupid, you know, and so I'm not going for, an, I'm not, I've gotten the message, you know, not, no interested. And uh, another of my sisters, my little sister, Steffi, she says, so did you go out on that date? And I said, no, she, she, she blew me off. She said she was sick. She goes, well, did you call her? I said, yeah, I called her a couple weeks ago and left her a message to call me back if she wanted to go out again. And she hadn't called back. She says to me, well, maybe she didn't get the message. And I'm like, well, maybe she wasn't sick either. I don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know here. So she just poked at me and poked at me and forced me to call her, practically dialed for me. And so I call and Carolyn answers. And she's like, hello. And I'm like, well, aren't we sounding better? Thought you may have passed away or something. Uh, I said, how are you doing? I said, I called a couple of weeks ago. I didn't know if you got the message. And she said, no, I hadn't. And so I had misunderstood in the length of the response that she wasn't interested in me. See, in those delays, sometimes it's difficult for us to believe that God's still on the job. You know, you're praying for something. You're asking him to do something. He's not doing it, like right now just my timetable. Now is always better than later. See, you could misunderstand that he's not either communicating to you, which could be wait, or he is saying, it's really a good thing that I'm saying no. Either way, he, by virtue of his actions, is communicating, and you can't presume that because you're not getting the answer you wanted that he doesn't love you. And this is part of the beauty of our season. Advent is designed to remember the the real basic concept of Christianity, which is God pursues you. All of the things that we do to satisfy our souls that would be inappropriate, bad for us, sinful, are done in some part because we don't really find life. We don't really find life in knowing that we are the beloved children of God. We don't stare deeply into God's word 
to hear him speak to us. We don't listen carefully to what we see in our lives to hear his voice speaking to us. We don't see what he's done, not just in providing for us, but also coming to save us as evidence of his initiative. And and that reality is what is transformative in our lives. That's what being rooted in Christ, in the gospel, is about. It's about finding joy continuously in who you are to God. Nothing else compares. There are people in the world that say, oh, well, that's the starting point of the Christian life, but then what you do is by faith you trust Him for miracles and money. As if any of those things are comparable to being a daughter or a son of the Most High God. If we really comprehended our status with God as His children, what we did for a living, how much crud we contained in our home, what others thought of us wouldn't matter. And and this is what we're to hear in the love of God at Christmas. The Father was thinking of you. He was pursuing you. He wasn't waiting for you to call. He's been calling and you've not been answering. And he just keeps on calling. He loves you. And I would pray that today as we celebrate communion, that we would remember this love again. So let us pray.